Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the next episode of Fitness with Feldman. Thank you so much for tuning in and joining us. Hopefully this finds all of you doing well and getting through this rough time as best you could. Uh, John, Ashley, and I were really, really fortunate to have Jason Friedman from The Gunks Runner and uh, his podcast, The Pain Cave Podcast, on our Facebook Live this past weekend. And we had a great discussion about all things running, training, trail running, ultra marathon running. And it was a really, really great discussion filled with so many great pieces of knowledge that I wanted to release it here to you guys in podcast form. So we are going to throw this out to you and hope everybody enjoys it and gets as much out of it as we did. I am going to put a link in the show notes to all the different places that you can find Jay and any questions or anything, please feel free to reach out to us. If there's anything that any of us can do to help you out, please don't hesitate to ask. Enjoy the show. Is on that website, but also uh, you can find on Stitcher and, and um, you know Spotify and, and Apple Podcasts and all the other places. Uh, it's about running. It's, it's supposed to be um, mostly the science of running. Uh, we do talk a little bit about physiology sometimes, depending on the guests. Sometimes we talk about the mental aspects uh, behind running, which is, you know, as we do more and more research, we learn how much the, the brain and the nervous system has to, uh, to say about or, or, or has to, to do with our performance. Um, but mostly we just talk about beer. So, um, you know, check that out. <laughs> talk about or try. Yeah, all of the above. Oh, definitely. All at the same time. <laughs> Change is good. We should uh, we should switch it up and try some of that. <laughs> right? Maybe we do it later at night rather than early in the morning. Honestly, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's a little early for me. I mean, were I podcasting right now, we I might have one. At, you know, for for something a little bit more professional like this, I decided it's a little early for that. Plus, I haven't. <laughs> Wait, professional? Where? where? <laughs> We're all just hanging out at home. <laughs> I've been having the problem since switching to the telehealth model. It is really easy to constantly drink coffee all day. Because yep. <laughs> you're not up Very and easy. around. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I really like to make, I like good coffee and I like to make it. So all of my equipment is here in my house. I have access to it. <laughs> when I'm at work, I could say like, ah, I'm not going to really enjoy that as much. So I'm not going to drink it, but it's a much harder you when know, you get here. <laughs> you know, I just I was reading a stat yesterday about Norway and how they like lead the world in eating and consuming so many different like uh like snack foods and drinks and stuff but amidst it all I learned that the US is the leading country in coffee drinking and I didn't know that. Oh yeah. I had no clue. Yeah. Big time. I mean, it goes back to the Boston Tea Party I think. <laughs> <laughs> now, oh. now cool kids club. So what are you personally training for right now, Jay? What are, you, what, are you, what are your goals this year? Yeah, so, I mean, the big goal for this year is the Leadville 100, Leadville Trail 100, which I did for the first time in 2018. And uh, really looking forward to heading back there. It is an unbelievably beautiful course. And um, it's a really, Leadville's a really cool and weird and funky town. And, uh, you know, the, the 
uh, Trail 100 in particular and, and the, the Leadville Race Series in general is kind of a, a huge boost to their economy. This is a, a, a town that, you know, for a hundred years was basically a mining town and, and, you know, has some great history. It was a boom town in the, you know, the, the late 19th and early 20th century. And they had all kinds of, uh, you know, cowboys and, and, um, you know, outlaws and stuff going through there and, uh, gold and silver mines and all kinds of stuff. And then when the mines all closed, the town almost became a ghost town as a lot of towns out West did when the mining went away. And, um, it really was through, uh, long distance running and long distance mountain biking and putting on these these events that the town's uh, whole economy was was saved um, and that continues to be the case today and, and the town is kind of thriving based on that so it's a, a very cool experience to be out there so that's the big goal for the year hopefully it comes off you know that you know we're obviously seeing more cancellations every day and every week uh, Leadville is in mid-August so I'm holding out hope um, if it doesn't happen, you know, a lot of us in the trail and ultra world have turned to, uh, doing solo events, uh, solo adventures, uh, fastest known time kind of thing. So, mm -hmm. uh, I have one of those planned for next month, uh, over here in the gunks and then, uh, maybe a big one planned for the end of the year if Leadville doesn't come together. So, you know, always something to train for, but that's the goal. Yeah. yeah. I would imagine Strava competitions are going to skyrocket. Yeah, Strava actually, I thought I saw they, they had shut some of their stuff down because they're trying to keep people from, you know, being outside too much. But uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's, a big, uh, it's a big aspect of the sport right now. I, I'm sure in cycling as well, but certainly, you know, all the top ultra runners are putting up uh, all kinds of fastest known times, you know, near where they live and stuff. There's a big website, uh, you know, fastestknowntime.com uh, that has taken off in the last few years. It used to just be a message board, and now it's developed into a website. They have their own podcast, and, um, you know, so you can make up your own route or pick out a classic route, and the routes can be anywhere from, you know, an hour or two up to, you know, going running across the country or running the Appalachian Trail or whatever, and uh, you can find almost anything on there, and as long as you can document your your uh, performance with a gps track or a strava file then you know it'll be up there for all to see and everyone can take a crack at it so it's it's a pretty cool little subculture that's My you gosh. know certainly taken on a, an increased importance in these these weird weird times yeah very weird Did you guys see there was a guy that ran a, uh, a marathon in his 20-foot backyard yeah it was like a run walk <laughs> in a little square oh my gosh so there's a there's a race going on right now. Um, I don't know if you or anyone on online has heard much about uh, what's called the backyard ultras, or it's yeah, a concept that started. Um, some some of you guys may have heard of, of the Barkley marathons. Uh, yeah. the, the same nut job, uh, Lazarus Lake, who puts on Barkley, is um, he, he also started a race and among other races. He he's got one called Big's Backyard, which. Uh, takes place in his backyard and the concept is what's called a last man standing event where you run four and change miles every hour until there's only one person left uh, it's a really fun format and really very very sadistic and cruel um, <laughs> and uh, so right now there's a virtual backyard uh, race going on all over the world that uh, one of the guys who finished I think third or fourth at the, the at Big's backyard last year is putting on so there's, uh, I think, 2,500 people from around the world that just started this morning 
um, running their own virtual backyard. So either uh, around their neighborhood or on their treadmill or in their yard. And I actually saw the reason I brought it up is there's someone in, um, in India where I guess the, the isolation restrictions are very, very strict and you really are not supposed to be going outside who's basically on the roof of his apartment building. So is a 15 by 15 foot uh, apartment building that he is running laps on the roof. Oh uh, my goodness. 4.1 miles every hour uh, until, until, you know, it stops. And there are a lot of really top athletes and who are doing it this weekend. So we could be going for two or three days here uh, of this guy running around his, his roof. So. <laughs> wow. That is crazy. Now, Personally, what made you make the jump from me in, into that ultra distance stuff? So, you know, growing up as a distance runner or, you know, coming of age as a distance runner or whatever, I, I was always more successful at the, the longer stuff. Um, you know, when I was in high school, I was already thinking about uh, running half marathons and marathons. And when I was in college, I actually ran my first marathon in college and, um, you know, I, I used to compete in the 5K and 10K, which was as, as far as we could go on the collegiate team. And so uh, it, it was kind of a natural progression for me just, you know, after I got out of college and after med school, I, I was training seriously for the marathon for a while. And um, I just kind of progressed naturally from there, just having an affinity for the longer distances. Um, what, I, what I liked about it also, I mean, there's many, many aspects of it that I like, but, um, you know... Th- running a marathon, if you're, if you're doing marathoning for time for, you know, trying to set a personal best or go for Boston or something like that, it's a, it can be a very unforgiving experience. Um, you know, to, to, to be kind of, like I say, on the rivet for two or three or three and a half or whatever hours, uh, of, you know, just not just the physical, but mentally knowing that you have to continue to hit those splits every mile and really just having to stop to go to the bathroom or tie a shoelace or something like that might set you back uh, enough to, you know, some, somewhat ruin your race. And that, that can be a very frustrating thing or, you know, and also to only have a couple shots at really having a good one each year and to be thwarted mm-hmm. by something like the wind or, you know, the temperature being too hot or something. It's, it really is a, it's an unforgiving kind of environment and ultra racing, you know, it, it, it has obviously its own set of challenges for sure. But uh, also, it actually is a little bit more forgiving, not just in pace, but in, um, you know, just uh, kind of the toll it takes on your body, I think, is a little bit more, it's a little easier to recover from, at least for me, than, than racing hard for 26 miles on pavement is. And uh, so it became something that I could do as I got older uh, uh, with a little bit more regularity and a little bit more success. And, um, you know, it, what... I think in some way we, we all kind of get into the sport to challenge ourselves and see what our limits are. And, you know, ultra running has that naturally kind of built into the sauce. Like, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, if I, if I go to a marathon, you know, I might have a good day or a bad day or a half marathon, you know, it might go well, it might not go so well. I might be happy with my result or disappointed with my result, but I know that I'm going to really be able to finish and and that's not going to be kind of the issue for me. And therefore, you know, whether or not I take a positive or a negative experience away from it is really going to be based on my effort level and my perception of that. Whereas in an ultra, especially if you get into the longer stuff uh, over a hundred kilometers or a hundred miles, you know, 
the, the element of, of just stepping on the starting line and not knowing really anything about how the day is going to go and, and whether or not you actually are going to finish, uh, there's actually some appeal uh, for me uh, to that, to, to know that, you know, whether, again, whether or not I have it that day or I don't have it that day, just accomplishing getting to the finish line or, or even not even getting to the finish line, but making myself move forward when I don't necessarily want to, that can be a victory in and of itself. So it, it actually does hold some kind of sick appeal, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Pretty awesome. Can, sorry, go ahead, Justin. No, go ahead. Go for it. No. I was going to say, um, you know, I, that's, that's the uh, unconventional thought when you said, you know, it's a little bit, easier on the body it's you know it takes a little bit less toll especially you get older um could you explain a little bit about that because i know a lot of people are, are sitting there saying wait a minute running ultras is easier yep. than running a regular marathon so john yeah. i had the same thought <laughs> sure so um and i don't want to make a necessarily a complete blanket statement because that's not always mm-hmm. necessarily going to be the case sure. but in, in general especially because uh you know in the current um, ultra running world, uh, trail running is, is the kind of the, the dominant or the primary modality. Um, running on trails, I mean, running on trails versus running on pavement is just easier on the body. I think most of you guys would agree. It's just mm-hmm. easier on your joints. It's easier on your connective tissue. Um, so that, that's, that's part, that's one uh, thing about it. The, the other thing that makes it easier is, uh, again, uh, if, if you're, if you're racing ultras, um, but, or, or if not either way, really, um, the time is generally going to be secondary to, you know, whatever else your goals are. So for the people at the front of the, of, of the pack, uh, who are racing for the win, you know, their time might be important to them, but really where they place is going to be important to them. How do they place relative to their competition? And, uh, whereas, uh, and, and, and further back in the pack, you know, uh, most, most of us, even the non-competitive people among us who are getting into marathoning or half marathoning or whatever, are going to have a time goal associated with mm-hmm. that event. Uh, and maybe it won't, maybe it will. But um, when you do set those time goals, again, it, 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 it does, if you're being uh, honest about challenging yourself with that time goal, it's going to be at a pace and an effort level that is going to take a lot out of you. Whereas I think in an ultra, especially a trail ultra, those time goals, they may exist, they may not exist, but they're a little bit more nebulous, I think. And because, you know, conditions can vary in terms of the trail, how hilly is it, weather-related things. And a lot of the time, those kind of goals take a backseat to having a certain kind of experience or, you know, finishing strong or just finishing the race. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it does, like I said, it, in a marathon, you know, you're running through aid stations, you're taking a drink of water, you're splashing on your head and you're gone. Uh, and, and if you're doing it well, you, you maybe haven't stopped at all. Whereas in an ultra, even for the, the top athletes, you know, you do have to stop and problem solve a little bit in a long race that's going to last 8, 12, 14, 20 hours or whatever it is. Um, you know, you can't run through every aid station, dump a glass of water on your head and go. Uh, so you're going to need to stop and slow down. You need to make sure you're getting the right amount of calories in. It's not the kind of thing that you can just take three gels and be done with, uh, in a couple of hours. You got to make sure you're getting some, some actual food in. You got to make sure you're staying hydrated. You got to make sure that if there's a problem spot, 
uh, on your foot or your leg or your chafing or something like that, which maybe in a marathon you could muscle through and, and be done with in a couple of hours again. In an ultra, that sort of thing might end your race if you don't take care of it. So you might have to sit down and take off your shoes and take off your socks and do some foot care and that sort of thing. And you kind of have, you, you have to get out of the mindset of, you know, 30 seconds or a minute here and there being the be all end all in a race that's going to last for, you know, upward of 10 or 14 or more hours. Um, you can give back a couple of minutes here and there if it means you're going to be running strong later on. So that sort of mental aspect of it uh, does lead to a little bit less stress on the system. And, you know, you're just pushing yourself in a different kind of way uh, than you are in a marathon. Uh, the pace is going to be, you know, should be a pace that you're going to be able to maintain all day. And therefore your, your muscles are going to be able, or your system's going to be able to tolerate it a little bit more. So, um, I, I, I generally within a couple days of an ultra, like two to three days, I'm usually able to get back out and do a little bit of a jog if I want to. Uh, whereas if I've done a, a, a hard road marathon, it could be a week before I really feel like I want to even put the shoes on again. Mm. Um, and, you know, so it, it is a little bit counterintuitive, uh, but, you know, and then the other thing I, I, I should have mentioned also is, which we had talked about a little bit beforehand, um, again, in the trails, you know, a, a hilly marathon, you might have a couple hundred feet of climbing over the course of 26 miles. You know, a flat ultra marathon, you're going to climb 10,000 feet over the course of 100 miles. Like, you know, a, a relatively flat ultra is, uh, you know, less than 150 miles or 150 feet per mile of climbing, um, whereas that would be considered insanely hilly for a road marathon. Um, and so what that, what that actually leads to is for most ultras, especially most trail ultras, you're not running the whole thing. There's going to be sections where you're going to walk, not just through aid stations, although that's part of it, but on steep uphills, you, you'll be walking. Uh, at times when you feel like you have to get your heart rate back under control, you're going to stop and you're going to walk. Um, it might be a fast walk, but it's going to be something that, uh, is going to take some of that, you know, that repetitive strain off your body. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's just another reason why they're a little, a little bit easier to recover from. Makes sense. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I think too, you know, you, you see, um, just the variability in the trails, the, the, changes in the muscle groups that you're using throughout the race and the difference. Um, you know, I know if, if I do a road marathon, um, it takes me about a week before I think it was a good idea to have done that. Um, where, whereas if, you know, if you do a, a, a good trail race, you know, you get done and you're like walking to the car talking about excitement for the next one and the next right. thing that you're going to do. Um, now, I know that we've got a bunch of people who a big group of, you know, followers who are, are predominantly roadrunners, mm -hmm. but are starting to make that transition into more of a trail thing um, and push into it. I think somewhat because, um, you know, they're getting sick of the road and they're starting to feel that. Um, also, I think we live in an amazing area where there's access to so many unbelievable trails some of which are in people's backyard that they don't even really know right. are right there. Right. Um, from a coaching perspective, what sort of, what do you sort of tips, tricks or advice you give to people as they're starting to make that transition from the road towards the trail? So um, yeah, I think the trail is, is uh, it's great. I, I think it's great for keeping 
mentally fresh. You know, it's easy to get burned out of training on the roads uh, and racing on the roads all the time. And so I would encourage anyone who's curious to take the step to, you know, just explore. And, and, and there are a lot of, I mean, just to say trail, there's a lot of variation among that. Um, you know, with my background in road and track and cross country running, um, I like trails that are really runnable. Um, and that's, you know, here in the gunks, um, that's, you know, we have a lot of carriage roads and, and trails that you can, you know, run basically a normal kind of rhythm on, uh, you can get, you know, into on your guys' side of the river, some, some of the sections of the Appalachian trail or, you know, up by us, you know, if you go a little bit North and you get up into the Catskills and it's a, uh, it's a, you know, just, it's still trail running, but it's much, much different where you have boulders and rock scrambles and, and very technical downhills and all kinds of stuff. So um, there's a very wide variety that keeps things fresh and exciting and, and you can kind of find your niche there. From a, from a standpoint, from a coaching standpoint in terms of how do you make that transition? I think the first thing that I would say is uh, I tend to tell people to stop caring about pace or distance, basically. Um, because, uh, and again, depending on the kind of terrain that you've got access to, or that you feel excited about or comfortable with, um, your pace is going to be anywhere from who knows, 10 to 20 seconds per mile slower than you would normally run for a similar effort on the trail to many minutes per mile slower. If you're doing a lot of, you know, uh, up and down vert, or, you know, if you're on a really technical trail and it's easy to either get frustrated by the slower pace or to, you know, work yourself too hard trying to maintain the kind of pace that you are used to. Um, so I, I, I like to tell people to really, you know, leave your GPS watch at home. Uh, I mean, have it if you need it for route finding or navigation or whatever. Um, you know, you don't get lost, John. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but I mean, if you know that you're, you know, usually going out and running a, a nine minute pace, hey, you know, if you're going to set yourself up for disappointment, if you go out on the trail and, you know, you're working really hard and finding that you're hitting a 10 minute pace. So I, t I tend to, uh, you know, with most of my athletes now, I work based on time instead of distance. And I work based on effort level instead of pace. So, you know, think of your training, not as I'm going out for a run at eight minute pace, but I'm going out for a run at a, uh, you know, an effort level of six on a scale of one to 10 or four on a scale of whatever it's going to be. Um, know what, you know, know what that rate of perceived exertion is for you. And that takes some time to, to learn how to kind of judge your effort and how that matches up to how you should be feeling and that sort of thing. That takes practice. And honestly, the best way to practice that is to do it without a watch also, is to just really, you know, learn how to recognize the feedback signals that your body is giving you and saying, you know, when, when is it uh, okay to push a little harder? When should I be backing off? You know, what, what's, a, what's an easy, you know, sensation or an easy uh, perceived exertion versus hard? And that takes time. But when you can kind of start to dial that in um, and just, again, start working off rate of perceived exertion and start working off overall time on feet rather than saying, you know, rather than saying I, it's, a, it's a long run day, I got to get 18 miles in, say it's a long run day, I got to get three hours in. And, you know, in the trails, those three hours might only get you 12 miles or 14 miles uh, rather than 18 or 20. Um, but, uh, you know, again, it's going it, to, it's, it's the same or it's a very similar kind of stress on the body 
uh, you're going to get very similar kind of physiologic adaptations as you would for from doing those three hours uh, on the road with probably a little bit uh, less, you know, kind of overall just musculoskeletal fatigue. And, and, and you might actually bounce back a little bit faster. Now, I mean, if again, if you're training for um, a road marathon and you want to incorporate trails into it, uh, I think those principles apply. I would say you still need to do some specific training. It would be a little bit foolish to try and do a road marathon, you know, hard just based off of uh, just training in the trails. You still need some of that kind of stimulus of, you know, your body knowing what it feels like to get into that road rhythm and also just learning the the adaptation of the stress of pounding on the pavement. But um, for the most part, uh you know, I think you can adapt a lot of the training the same way, you know, you can, you can do speed work on the trails too. You can do hill work just like you do, mm-hmm. uh, on the, on the pavement, just do it by time instead of distance. Same thing with speed work. If you're used to doing, you know, four by 800 meters, uh, in three minutes, just do four by three minutes on a relatively flat or runnable stretch of trail. And, uh, as long as you're being honest with yourself about what the effort level is and not going you know, too hard that you're blowing out the tubes and not going too easy that you're not getting the same stimulus, then you're going to get a very good workout and, you know, it might recharge you a little bit mentally as well. Mm-hmm. I, I like think it. That's, nice. I think Pretty that's awesome. a great point is getting back to what matters more is total time on your feet. Right. Um, you know, cause that's what your heart has to do. Sometimes your heart doesn't know the difference between paces and, you know, this pace yeah. and that pace, but it does know that, Oh, I have to work for three hours or four hours. So that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and for people who train by heart rate, that's a great way to kind of keep. I, I like yeah. using the heart rate as uh, kind of a regulator to kind of keep the effort level in check on easy days. Um, and that's a great way to use it in the trails is to, you know, you go out and if you're, you know, again, you, get, you got, kind of have to ignore your pace. But if your heart rate is saying that, you know, this is where I should be mm-hmm. on an easy day, then just follow that. And it can help also keep the, the effort level honest on a hard day where you want to make sure that you're getting up into your, you know, uh, your threshold type, type zone or your interval type zone. Um, if you know what your, what your heart rate levels are. Um, yeah, my coach, uh, David Roach, he always says, you know, the body doesn't know st- uh, miles, the body knows stress. So, you know, it doesn't really matter. You know, we get kind of hung up sometimes on, oh, I'm only running 20 miles a week. I'm only running 35 miles a week or whatever it is. Body doesn't care how many miles you're doing. I mean, the body wants to know how much stress is the cardiovascular system uh, taking, how much stress is the musculoskeletal system taking, and what do we have to do to adapt to that? And that, you know, that, um, you know, this gets into a broader discussion out of just trail versus road running, but just about running and training in general, especially in a time like this when, you know, we all have a little bit more stress, I think, than, than we do in our, our normal everyday lives. But, you know, any kind of stress on the body is going to be perceived in a similar way by the, the, um, the, endocrine, the neuroendocrine system and, and everything else. So, you know, the stress of, um, you know, having questions about uh, finances or questions about work or maybe not sleeping as well based on what's going on or the stress of having to, you know, suddenly not just have a full-time job but also homeschool your children or whatever it is. Those are all things that are going to, you know, increase your stress levels, increase your cortisol levels and, and put a strain on your adrenals and everything else. And, and it places a real, um, 
a pri- you have to place a real priority. It pr- places a premium on recovery and managing stress in general because th- those same kind of stresses are going to have their, their physical components and their physical um, results. And you're going to see that affect your performance unless you're you know, careful about taking that all into account. Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely a point to make because a lot of people will, will basically forget how stress will impact performance. Um, and how over time, if they're stressed all the time or say they're running to try to just decrease their stress, um, but they're trying to improve their performance, they may not necessarily see those gains and they're completely forgetting about, Hey, you know what? Stress is putting these same stressors on my body sometimes as if I'm going out and trying to train hard. Um, so it's just, it's an awesome point to make. So thanks for bringing it up. That's right. And that's, that's again, that goes back to what I was saying about, uh, kind of rate of perceived exertion or RPE versus training based on, you know, other data like pace or, or heart rate or that sort of thing. You have to recognize that um, you, ha- you have to respect what your body is telling you all the time. Um, you know, the, the brain and the neuros, the neuroendocrine system are, are what really is governing kind of how we feel and how we respond to how we feel. And we have to be really cognizant of that when we're under more stress that, you know, if you go out for a run and, and things are not clicking like they normally would be or should be, or you're frustrated by that, you have to listen to what your body is telling you and kind of take what it's giving you on that day. And trying to force your way through feeling poorly, um, you know, just just to hit, you know, a certain split or a certain time or whatever you think you should be getting out of that workout, ultimately that's going to be counterproductive. You might get away with it for a day or a week. But uh, over time, if you're not being honest with yourself and, and listening to what your body is saying, then you're, you're going to wound up either injured or uh, burnt out or, uh, you know, divorced. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's where sometimes like we, we always talk about with, the, with runners, you know, like the most underutilized exercise in running is walking. Um, and just, you know, sometimes just going for a walk and, and taking a less, less lowering that stress on your system that way, um, it is, uh, a, a really, really good, you know, technique, um, now sort of with that. So that'll kind of, can kind of lead us in well to a little bit of a chat on like periodization and kind of how you break out training programs for people as you're doing that. Um, why don't you explain a little bit of that for people? Cause I think a lot of people will basically pay attention to um, I saw on the internet that I need to run X amount of miles a week in order to run a half or a full or a, you know, 30 miles or, you know, 50 mile, whatever they're doing. Um, and they so focus on getting that, that number in right. um, that the quality isn't necessarily there. Right. Right. So um yeah, there's a lot of ways to kind of approach this this topic. What I, what I would say is this: that the body is, in in many different ways, the body is just an amazing machine at adapting to stress. Um, at, from you know the cardiovascular system, the respiratory system, the musculoskeletal system, whatever it is, um, it, and and what training is really is response to stress and adaptation to stress. And so a lot of us, when we first get into the sport and we start, you know, we go from nothing to a little bit to a little bit more, you know, the, everything we add on is a little bit of new stress. And, you know, over time we start seeing these adaptations and, and it's really exciting because we get all this positive feedback. And then what can happen is, you know, as we get adapted, um, 
it takes more and more stress, obviously, to get further uh, adaptation and, and to see further progress. And you get kind of get you can get into this this uh, kind of negative feedback loop where you know unless you're adding more all the time, you feel like you aren't really getting anywhere, and that's where people can really plateau and kind of get get stale. Um, so in order to maintain progress without trying to continually just ramp up mileage or ramp up uh, distance or anything like that, we do need to build in these periods of these kind of down periods, and we need to build in variation in terms of our day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week or month-to-month -month training. And that's kind of what we mean when we talk about periodization. So, I, you know, we can talk a little bit, I guess, about, um, well, let me say this. I, I'll just talk a little bit briefly about the importance of uh, varying effort levels uh, uh, kind of in the day-to-day, -day, and then I'll talk a little bit about kind of periodizing over time. Yeah, because uh, I think that's something a lot of people benefit from that varying right. effort level yeah right exactly and and honestly that's that's a trap that i have fallen into multiple times uh over the course of my career um sure. and yeah and and it's it's a really easy trap to fall into because um you know we're we tend to gravitate towards the kind of training and the kind of running that we just like to do um and so i've always liked going out and doing like a long relatively hard but not too hard run uh, and that's kind of like my baseline run was, was, was that for a long time. And, and, um, you know, I kind of got to the point where, you know, by, by all, uh, outside expert or, or, or by outside perception, I was in great shape, right? I could go out and do, I mean, there were times when I could do, uh, you know, a hundred miles a week of just steady state running and feel great. And people would be like, wow, you're in great shape. But when it came to racing, because I hadn't really built in any actual variation. I was just in a very narrow range of performance because that really that one thing was, was really all I could do. And that can happen at any level. That can happen to somebody who's, you know, even just started out and has been doing this for a few months and is, you know, training their, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 miles a week or whatever it is um, at one specific pace or one specific intensity. You can get very good at running that one specific intensity, but A, you can get very stale and it can lead to um, a lot of mental and emotional fatigue and, and kind of uh, you get, you can start to get a lot less uh, out of your running than, than you had at the beginning. And it, it does lead to kind of a decrement in performance because again, once the body, once you've adapted to that level of training and that intensity of training, then the gains beyond that are pretty marginal unless you start varying things up a little bit. So, and again, this, this is not just a, a phenomenon for people who have been doing this just for a little bit of time. It's, it's for, you know, experienced runners who just, in, unless you think about, it, especially as you get older, you know, we're so used to building on miles and stuff like that. And we can kind of get into this rut of doing the same thing over and over or the same paces over and over. And it, it does lead to this, this very narrow window uh, in which we can function optimally. So I think it's important that for, for both um, uh, inexperienced runners who are first starting out or, or all the way up to the most experienced runners is to really have variations in effort level from day to day and week to week. And so that might be just, again, um, reading your body and, and knowing when to slow down and not, but more often than not, it's going to be actually building in specific days where you're working at a, a prescribed level of, you know, this is what I want to get out of this workout. And it's going to be, you know, uh, 
however you want to describe it, uh, something in, in the uh, lactate threshold zone or something in the VO2 max zone, or, you know, I'm going to work on um, neuromuscular efficiency, I'm going to do strides and strides might just be some short sprints to kind of recruit more fast twitch muscle fibers and, and uh, work on your running economy. Um, but, but you need to have these kind of variations a couple times a week where it's not just I'm going out and running at my easy pace every day, or I'm going out and running at my moderate pace every day. You need that variation because the body needs new stresses all the time to force it to adapt. And without having new stresses, the body's going to, you know, find that one level of this is what we've been doing. I'm adapted to this. And then everything's once it gets too easy for the body, then you're not really adapting and you're not really gaining fitness anymore. So that's why we need to kind of periodize on a, on a micro level, on a day-to-day or a week-to-week level is to build in some of that variation so we don't get stale and so that we're continually um, adapting and, and putting different strains on different systems uh, to make sure that we're really progressing the way we want. Now... Um, periodization on, on a larger scale, it, we talk about when we talk about how do we, um, how do we train over the course of a month or several months or a year. And I think that's an important thing to think about now, especially because, you know, a lot of us kind of train through the winter or built up, you know, out of the winter looking for a big race in the spring or maybe a early summer where we were going to try and run a good marathon or something like that. And now that those are off the calendar, it can be very easy to just be like, well, now I'm just training and I'm just going to train through to October because, uh, you know, I'll go to run the Mohawk Marathon in October. Uh, so we're just going to train through there. But um, you do need to build in these cycles of um, kind of gradual building with recovery because recovery, as you guys know, is really uh, when the when the real adaptation takes place. Um, you know, it's it's not the workouts you know, the workout, the hard workouts are when you're breaking muscles down and, and really straining the system. It's the easy workouts and the rest days and the sleep where you're, you're rebuilding your musculoskeletal system and where the, the actual adaptation and, and the uh, progression is taking place. And that's the same thing on a macro scale. So if we're constantly increasing or uh, keeping our mileage or our intensity or whatever at a very high level, without building in a period where we can let it relax and let the adaptations take place, then we're not getting the true benefits of, of the training that we're doing. So what, what we need to do, you know, now uh, as we're kind of a lot of us are kind of fo- focused on the future and kind of saying, well, we'll get through this next month or next couple of months um, and we'll just train, 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 and then we'll build up for, you know, a race in October or November or whatever it is. It's going to make it very hard unless we make sure that we're building in these cycles of recovery. And that's kind of what I mean when I talk about periodization. So if you had a big race coming up in late April, I know there's a lot, you know, spring marathon season, obviously, you know, we're, we're, we're losing Boston now, we're losing London, we're losing all these local marathons and half marathons and everything else. If that was on your calendar, keep something, keep that date or that, that um, general time frame, maybe a week or two around that, keep that as something that you're building towards. And that can be anything that you want to do. Maybe it's, uh, you know, trying to run just a, 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 you know, a fast 10 miles near your house. Maybe it's trying to run, you know, uh, uh, longer than you've done before. If your longest run ever was a marathon, hey, maybe go try and do a 27-mile run in training or something. Have 
have something mentally and physically out there as a goal that you can continue to build towards because then also you're going to need mentally and physically the time afterwards that we want to build in some recovery and, and allow it to progress like a normal season would where you allow yourself to, to recover and then gradually build back up. Building back up does not mean you're starting from scratch. It's not a, it, you're not going to gain anything more by training through what should be a normal recovery. You need those recovery times to get the adaptations and to rebuild the system. And then building back up, you're actually going to be stronger. So uh, that, that's kind of what I'm trying to do. I had, you know, I had a couple races that uh, I was looking forward to in like uh, late April, early May. Um, you know, a, a couple of short things and then a 50 miler in May over here at, at Rock the Ridge. Those are obviously canceled now. So uh, Which I'm, went very well for you last year. It, it was a good day last year. Yes, thank you. Um, so he won, but, but he's being very modest. <laughs> but, I still, but I still have not those exact days, but I have uh, two things on the calendar in, in late April and then mid-May where I'm going, you know, one day I'm going, I'm, I, I know I have a hard 25 miler uh, that I'm doing with a friend. And then uh, in the middle of May, I'm going to try and do this, this fastest known time uh, uh, in, the, in the gunks. And so that, that's my kind of race effort. And after that, I'll be able to build in uh, a recovery time and, you know, just what I would normally do after a race where, you know, I'll lie around and I'll eat a bunch of pizza and drink a bunch of beer. And then we'll start, start to build back up, hopefully for Leadville or something else in the fall. But, you, you know, there's, again, there's this temptation to say, well, everything's canceled now. I have Leadville in a few months. Let me just, you know, I'll just start doing all the mileage now and I'll get ahead of it and, and everything else. It doesn't work that way. You, you're going you're gonna to get to the point where you're four, four to six weeks out from what you're training for and you're going to feel great. And then you're going to be stale and you're going to be past your, your prime. You need, you need those cycles of, of uh, stress and recovery built in mm -hmm. uh, to really hit your potential. Jay, uh, let me ask you. So from a coaching standpoint then, um, you know, we, I work with a lot of people that love the half distance. So when I'm coaching them, I, um, I know there's a lot of different coaching uh, principles or philosophies, but I like and I've found a sweet spot with like that 20-week time frame where you have like an eight-week build and then you have – or sorry, base and you have a six-week build and a six-week peak, right, which includes the taper. So mm -hmm. what would you suggest for people – um, for something like this, cause I've said the same, it's like, yeah, keep that date, do like a mini race rehearsal. Right. Um, but in terms of like using this time to retest, like, it's like, okay, if you, if you were, if your goal was to hit a certain time or a, a pace, you now have X amount of more months to, you know, try and improve upon that. So, um, do you suggest kind of cycling through like after a six week build, instead of going into a six week peak, do you then like to revert back to another eight week base period after a little bit of um, like, you know, a rest week in there or something like that. Um, so how do you like to, or what would you suggest for, um, you know, for athletes that are doing that right now? It's a really good question. And I think what you're, what you're describing is probably what I would say is, is maybe we do, you do a short build to like a mini peak and maybe that mm -hmm. mini peak is, okay. um, you know, it doesn't even have to be a race type effort or anything like that, but it's maybe trying a new workout that you didn't think you could do before. Um, and, you know, try and string together a couple of those over the course of a couple of weeks. But yes, I would, I would, depending again on how much time you have until, you know, whatever the, the actual thing you're doing down the road is, I'm always going to revert back to base 
with a little bit of um, quality, quote unquote, mixed in. Um, and and the the principle that I would say there is that the the longer your base building period is, or the the deeper your base, or the the stronger your foundation, I guess, however you want to describe it, then the shorter your ramp up can actually be. Okay. So if you you know, and I think right going for a for a half or a marathon with if you're starting from starting from 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 i think right an eight week base and then a 12 week build and taper is is great um but what you realize is if you keep your base instead of at you know a floor if you keep it at 20 percent or 40 percent then you don't need that whole 12 week tape uh build up to a big effort then it might be a six or an eight week build up um, if you're coming back down to a, a, a base level that you can, you know, run comfortably and, and healthy and, and with plenty of recovery, but still maintaining fitness. So what I would say is if you've gone through a base period and you've kind of done a mini build or like a, a six week build up to something, and then you want to cycle back down, cycle back down and run your normal base. But one of the, one of the types of workouts that I like to do during a base building period is just just some short strides or short hill repeats, two to three times a week uh, to keep turnover and and you know just, just so we're not getting into kind of that ultra marathoners or marathoners shuffle all the time. Um, so if you're running, uh, uh, you know, an hour or forty five minutes or whatever, sometime in the second half of the run. Um, four times uh, 30 seconds of what I would call strides or surges uh, or six times 20 seconds or something like that. And these are, you, they don't have to be all out sprints. We don't want you, you know, this is not chariots of fire, you know, head back, you know, teeth gritted, <laughs> that sort of thing. This is, uh, you know, as, as, as we like to say, smooth speed. You want to, you want to be focused on nice, nice, smooth turnover. You're not straining. You're not over striding. You're just focused on, you know, Feeling good, basically. Uh, mm -hmm. Feeling good and feeling fast. I like to say it's fast, but it's not hard. Um, you don't want to be straining, but you want it to be fast. You want to feel light on your feet. You want to you want to feel like you're getting outside your comfort zone of just regular easy running. And honestly, doing that three times a week, if you do it um, on on a, a flat surface or a very gentle uphill twice a week, uh, I don't I don't love doing them downhill to start out with just because you can, you run the risk of overstriding and getting it. It's, downhill strides are great when you're a little bit more experienced, but um, at this point, starting on a flat or, or even a very gradual uphill just to make sure you're not overstriding. And then, you know, once a week, I like to do uh, four by 30 seconds on a pretty good uphill, like a four to 6% uphill grade. And just to, just to get a different musculoskeletal and a different uh, cardiovascular stress in there, with the same kind of principle. It's fast, but it's not hard. It's, you know, it's turnover. It's, it's kind of using the different muscle groups a little bit more, the different muscle fibers a little bit more. And if you can, if you can do that two to three times a week, three to four, yeah, something like that during a base building period, then when you transition into your, uh, your build up, your next six week build or eight week build where you're going to start mixing in your lactate threshold runs and, and your interval runs, those, those workouts are going to come together much, much better if you haven't neglected just a little bit of that neuromuscular component with the strides during your, your base build. Gotcha. Nice. Really good. I like it. Uh, sure. I, I want to make sure we have some time to talk about the stuff that you're doing at the Heart Center, but I also want to uh, get a couple of people asked a couple of questions. So 
Um, ben was curious how you approach nutrition for ultra racing. That's that's a good question, and and I'm glad I'm glad we I'm glad we addressed that because um, people you know a lot of times people will come to me and say you know I've I've done a marathon or a couple of marathons and I want to do a 50k or a 50 mile or whatever it is what do I do differently? The answer honestly in terms of training not that much um, mm-hmm. certainly for a 50k or a 50 mile. Uh, certainly for a 50K, you can do basically the same training that you're doing for a marathon. A 50 mile, you know, you might want to build in some, you know, back-to-back long runs, but generally you can do just fine on marathon training. The big difference is practicing nutrition. Um, Now, nutrition in, uh, (laughs) no, no differently in the rest of society, nutrition in ultra running is a huge hot topic with tons of debate and everyone's got their brilliant idea of what's right and what's not right and everything else. And just like in regular society, there's very little science to support any of it, right? I mean, you can, you can quote a study that's going to say <laughs> that it all yeah. be this way or that way or anything else, uh, and, and it's no different in ultra running. And there are great ultra runners who are uh, vegans. There are great ultra runners who are um, low-carb, uh, you know, high-fat athletes, uh, you know, ketogenic or, or however you want to describe it, paleo. Uh, there's a, a, a zillion different ways to do it, and you can have success at all of it. Um, so. I, I would get less caught up in the specifics and more caught up in saying when you're training for an ultra or when you're starting to make the move into ultra, thinking about nutrition and practicing nutrition on the run and, and what you're going to be using during a race is very important because, you know, especially as they get longer and longer, uh, it's less about how fast you can run and more about how much can you eat and, you know, can you keep those energy levels up? you know, after your glycogen stores are depleted and, and how many calories can you take in and that sort of thing. So it really is about practicing uh, different strategies and, and kind of finding what works for you, both in the day-to-day, you know, maybe your day-to-day nutrition doesn't change that much, but what you take on a run does and, and getting used to having to take in, you know, multiple hundreds of calories per hour uh, takes take some getting used to. So I, I'd, I'd hesitate to give you any definite you know, I, I look, I, I generally work on a low carb, higher fat kind of thing uh, when I'm in training for various reasons. And, I, you know, I'm happy to talk to anybody about that sort of thing. But I'd hesitate to, to, you know, tell you that there's a specific way that you have to fuel or anything like that. But you have to be cognizant of your fueling much more so than than in a marathon or in shorter distance racing. Um, a marathon, like I said, you know, we have... 2,000 to 2,500 calories of, of glycogen in our bodies that we can kind of call on even at a relatively high intensity. So, you know, that's 20 to 25 miles of, you know, at 100 uh, calories an hour, that's 20 to 25 miles of energy that you just, you have stored. That's about the max that you can store in the terms of glycogen, but that's also why you can get through a marathon without taking in too many calories. Maybe if you have 2,000 calories stored, you can take in three or four gels and be good. Um, but you know, if you're going to be running for 50 miles, then you're, you're, you know, 2000 to 3000 calories short. And so now you got to be thinking about how you're going to get that in, uh, on the move and, and, you know, without having to stop and, you know, vomit. Uh, so, and, and that sort of thing takes planning and it takes practice. So my, my advice would be if you're thinking about nutrition, you're doing it right. Um, you know, think about it, plan it, experiment with different things on the run, 
Some people love gels. Some people love real food. Some people love candy bars. Some people just like doing, you know, just liquid nutrition. Uh, you know, there are people who swear by doing uh, hundreds of miles just on Tailwind, um, which is, a, you know, a liquid nutrition kind of product. I don't know if Tailwind would say you should do it that way, but um, <laughs> there, there, there's all kinds of strategies and it's, it really is just about finding what works for you. But that, that in, in making the transition, especially to just shorter distance, quote unquote, ultra marathoning uh, and the 50K and the 50 mile, that's the one biggest uh, change that you need to make is really thinking about nutrition and practicing different strategies. Did that answer the question? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, I, since I know Ben's marathon nutrition plan is usually um, whatever he has laying around the morning of the race, grab it and go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and honestly, for an ultra, that might be fine. Like, uh, but, but you have to know going in. And I, I know for me at this point, like I know that there are a few things that I probably don't want to eat when I'm uh, racing in an ultra, but I also know that I can go to, you know, I can come into the aid station 35 miles in and kind of whatever looks good is what I'm going to have. Um, but, you know, again, that's something that I know from years of experience. I mean, I've run 50 ultra marathons now. Uh, I've been doing this for longer than I'd like to admit. Um, and it took a lot of time to, to figure out how I could get to that point and what do I need to eat, you know, the night before and what do I need to eat the morning of and that sort of thing. Um, and I mean, the fun thing about one of the fun things, one of the many fun things about ultra running is coming into an aid station and basically being at like, you know, a, a country home buffet where it's just like, there's 15 different things. Like, you know, it's not, you know, at a marathon, you, you might get a goo or a banana and some Gatorade. You know, at an ultra, you're going to get grilled cheese and you might get soup and you might get a hamburger uh, or eight different kinds of candy, four different kinds of potato chips, pretzels, salt sticks, whatever it is. And, you know, I mean, it, it can be really overwhelming if you don't know what you're doing, but it's also super fun. So, you know, enjoy it. Like people swear by all kinds of stuff. Claire Gallagher, who won the Leadville 100 in one of her, I think it was her first 100 actually, and she actually... Uh, she won Western States last year, but uh, Leadville was her first hundred mile win. She, the main thing that she ate was um, uh, like cake frosting, like literally, you know, the, they sell the, the icing or the frosting in like a tub. Yeah. Yeah. Frosting was what she was eating. And that's how she did it. I mean, you know, whatever you want, but you got to think about it. Yeah. But, so John has a similar diet just without the running. Yeah. <laughs> he, he eats all of that stuff on a regular basis. It just has nothing to do with running. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing. You open my cabinet and it's like, I have the same assortment of stuff to choose from every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I, I will, I'm going to be racing your, uh, your pizza 5k, you know, either this year or next year or whatever. I'm there, yeah. man. So I'll, I'll throw that out there. The, the new Paul's pizza challenge, this would have been the sixth year where postponed indefinitely right now but usually in in early may maybe we'll pull it, put it together in the fall or we might just wait till next year three 3.2 3.3 miles uh the point is we eat a slice of pizza at every pizza place in new paltz so depending on how many of them are in business or out of business it's six to eight slices of pizza uh <laughs> and uh you got to run from spot to spot and we got people set up there to give you your pizza it is a blast so uh yeah we'll we'll push that push that one out uh as it gets closer keep um 
keep me in mind if you need somebody to like do taste testing. You know, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm willing to take time out of my schedule to help you out with that. He's trying to get out of the running part. He just wants <laughs> yeah. to taste the pizza. He wants the pizza. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you volunteer, I need, because we have volunteers at every pizza spot to make things run smoothly. So I do pay for your, your pizza if you're volunteering. So. <laughs> Oh, oh, there you go. I'll, I'll do my part. <laughs> um, I want I want to talk a little bit about the stuff that you're doing you're doing at the Heart Center because I think that is yeah, really unique awesome. and a great thing for um, a lot of the endurance athletes in the area. And there's a lot of people that I think can benefit from you know that sort of yeah. testing. Um, and I know you'll do a much better job explaining it than we can. So why don't you give everyone sort of a little bit of idea of what you have going on over there? Sure. Not to, I don't want to get too uh, deep in the weeds, but just to give you a little overview. Yeah. So we do, we do what we call um, uh, exercise. Uh, well, you can call it a bunch of different things, uh, but basically it's, it's exercise physiology testing. And people may have heard the terms VO2 max or lactate threshold. Um, and these are the kind of things that we're testing in the lab. So the, the way that the way that it works, basically I put you on the treadmill and we hook you up to a mask with a tube uh, a hose that goes into a machine and, and, and we're measuring how much oxygen you're taking in and how much uh, carbon dioxide you're breathing out at various intensities. And from that, we're able to determine um, what, is, what, what are the parameters that or the physiologic parameters that define your exercise uh, and your fitness level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the main things, again, that we're looking at are VO2 max, which is the volume of oxygen that you can uh, take in and utilize during maximal exercise, and your lactate threshold, which is the point at which you translate, you transition from uh, being able to use the lactic acid that you're producing and buffer it and use it as a fuel to the point where it starts to accumulate at a more or less exponential rate, uh, which is going to not in, in and of itself not be the limiting factor in exercise, but is is basically signaling that you're you're in a uh, a non-sustainable exercise state or a, a minimally sustainable exercise state. And we're associating these with different heart rate zones and that sort of things. We have you on the heart rate monitor and we can uh, pinpoint afterwards, you know, this is the level in terms of your heart rate, in terms of your intensity, in terms of your pace, whatever it is at which you want to train in certain zones. So uh, for an easy day, you should be keeping your heart rate in this range. For a lactate threshold day or, or a, uh, a you know, moderate intensity day, you want to be keeping your heart rate in between this and this and, and so forth. And it can be really helpful in terms of building out an exercise program if you're looking to improve performance, if you're looking to train for a half marathon or a marathon, um, to know exactly where you should, what kind of pace or what kind of heart rate you should be uh, targeting. And it's also very useful to follow over time. Uh, a lot of people come in and do the testing once, and it's great to get a good snapshot and get these zones and, and uh, you know, kind of focus on uh, where your heart rate should be for different intensities. But, you know, those things can change with your fitness and with your, um, with your experience. And therefore, the, when it gets really, really useful is to – test a couple times over the course of the year, maybe every six months for a year or something, and to see how your uh, VO2 max and how your lactate threshold and how your heart rates have responded to the training that you've been doing. And so we we can look at things and say, well, your VO2 max indicates that you should be able to do this, uh, and your lactate threshold indicates that you should be able to do this. So let's target our training for X, Y, and Z and come back in six months 
and we'll do it again. And then we can see, all right, that training improved one of these parameters that we wanted to, um, wanted to investigate. Now let's see if we play with another type of training, if we can bring another thing into line. And, and so it really can be helpful, not just from a one-shot deal of, you know, what's my VO2 max and everything else, uh, but it can be really helpful in terms of guiding training over the long term and seeing progress uh, as, as your fitness changes. So, um, you know, I have uh, on my blog, which is on, on the same website that we talked about before, uh, there's a bunch of articles on there on, you know, what's VO2 max, what's lactate threshold, um, you know, how do we use these in training so people can go there or, you know, email me and I'm happy to answer questions mm. about that sort of thing. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really, it's, it, it's, a, a, a very cool test. It only takes about 10 to 15 minutes, uh, of, of running maybe 20 at the most. I don't know if I've ever actually had anyone go 20 minutes. Um, and you can really get a lot of information out of it that can, that can really help you guide your training quite a bit. Um, I also use it, like I said, just, uh, for, you know, the, the cardiologists use it for people who are recovering from, uh, certain, uh, heart procedures. Sometimes we use it for transplant patients. Sometimes we use it for people who, you know, their, their heart tests have come out okay, but they're still having some problems in terms of exercise tolerance. It can be helpful data points and that sort of thing. So we use it for, you know, uh, um, pathology to, you know, in, in some respects, but, uh, you know, my real interest in it is, is in working with athletes and, uh, you know, helping them achieve higher performance. I think, yeah, you know, like we were talking about the periodization before, and I think that um, it, it's, especially as you're trying to really achieve those, those high levels of performance and make those, make those big gains and hit those big goals, um, it's important to know what those values should be. Yeah. Um, and unless you really do a test and accurately test it, you can't yeah. know, you know, what those values should be. Yeah. Um, and nothing against Garmin, but the number that your Garmin puts out is yeah. sort oh, no, of like a really good guess kind of sort of. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like right. using, and, and it's like using like your 220 minus your age for your heart rate max. It's not going to be applicable to every single person. Yeah, so doing testing like that, or even just working, you know, doing some other stuff is going to be awesome to help you really figure out, Hey, where can I push myself to? Uh, right. where can I get to, you know, and it helps you create that plan and, and really kind of dive into if you really use them more heart rate zone training, stuff like that. Right. And you know, I don't, I don't want to say anything is the be all and end all. I mean, it's, it's, it's a data point or a set of data points that when used in conjunction with other things can be very, very helpful. I, I still think, you know, I don't like relying on any one system or any one uh, way of looking at training um, as, you know, as the only way to do it. Um, I think heart rate training, like we talked about, can be very, very useful in certain things. I think it's, it's very important also that, you know, sometimes you got to put that stuff away and just yeah. learn how to do it by feel. And we need to, you know, develop that kind of what's your personal RPE, your rate of perceived exertion and knowing because, you know, in a race, that's the kind of thing, you you know, some people have a lot of success running with a heart rate monitor in races. And some people really need to, you, you, you know, if your heart rate monitor doesn't work or whatever, you need to be able to, to, to monitor and, and, and correct your effort um, based on feel. But it, it, it is a really useful test and a useful set of data points that we can combine with other things to integrate to really make a, a full training program. Yeah, and I think the more that people have the data and like runners are becoming more and more data junkies or just endurance athletes in general and people are so focused on looking at the screen, looking at the screen rather than 
how do I feel right now and making that association so that when they don't have it, whether you're using power, heart rate, or uh, pace, anything like that, you know, understanding what your body feels like, that effort level. So we can, I, I think we've talked to people about RPE and they, they still don't get it. Um, it's almost like using yeah. RPE, you almost have to use RPE in conjunction with one of those other data points in order to let somebody get really used to it. Um, I remember the first Ironman I ever did, I wore my heart rate monitor with my chest strap. It was in the ocean and I'd never done that before. And I got <laughs> on the bike and it didn't work. So my heart rate monitor didn't work till mile 66 of the bike. And I was supposed oh, to be it for the whole bike leg. So I'm sitting there at Aerobar trying to take like a carotid pulse the whole time. <laughs> and it was just <laughs> the only saving grace was that it was a long enough training plan when I still trained. Um, you know, that I got used to like what my body should feel like, but man, it was still all over the place. Um, right. But right. I think and Matt, often runners don't know how they're supposed to feel. Right. Exactly. And that's like you said, learning to match up that RPE with some more, some kind of objective data is really, really helpful. So yeah. like with my athletes, I like to have them for every run, give me a one to 10. How did that feel? And yeah. then, yeah. you know, then you can, you can apply that to, well, where was your heart rate, you know, during that, or, you know, what was your pace during that? Okay. So now you, now, you know, when, when you look down at your heart rate monitor, now, you know how that heart rate is supposed to feel, you know, you know how a five on the RPE is supposed to feel, you know, what that is supposed to translate to in your heart rate. And so, you know, that, that's, it's having that kind of feedback uh, that's really helpful. So yeah, Get it like I like to have people get into the habit of just you know in their log either a one to ten or you know just tell me when you when you log in your your workout for the day how did it feel was it easy was it you know did you feel flat did you feel tired whatever it is and just being mindful of that and knowing how you felt and having some record of it so that you can go back and say oh yeah that felt you know I re I remember that day I remember where I was running and I remember how that felt that was an easy day that's the way I want to it to feel most of the time or whatever it is, that's really invaluable to have that. Nice. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Um, I want to be, uh, you know, I want to be respectful of your time and everything that you have going on. I think <laughs> the only other thing I was, I wanted to sort of talk about and get, um, because I think that um, from the, from the trail races that I've done and being around, you know, some different ultra races, um, the biggest thing that I found was an unbelievable sense of community. Um, you know, my sort of impression is like, if you go to a road marathon, um, everybody is sort of in their space and in their zone mm -hmm. and they, they sort of go and do their thing. Um, you go to a trail race or you go to an ultra race and uh, everybody's sort of, they're there for themselves. They're going to do their race, but they're, they're also there for the, the group and the community and they're interested mm -hmm. in, how everybody around them is doing. And, um, you know, I don't get the impression that people would like run by somebody who fell, um, right. you know, on the side, whereas on the road, it's sort of just like, Oh, I really hope I can clear that guy as I, you know, step <laughs> into the get into the next, get into the next yeah. one. Um, so, you know, I'm curious from your perspective as being part of it for a really, really long time um, as it, uh, that, how has that changed as more people get involved in the sport? Um, and sort of how has that been evolving over time? Yeah. Um, I mean, as much as we've seen a, a growth and kind of an explosion in the popularity of trail and ultra running in the last decade or so, uh, it still is very much a niche community within 
you know, the running world, which is in and of itself a niche community in the world in general. Um, and, you know, you know I, I certainly, I wasn't there, you know, at the, at the uh, birth of ultra running, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. Um, and I know a lot of the kind of old school folks uh, see, you know, what's going on now as being somehow, you know, a sellout or, or different, you know, just different. I mean, progress mm -hmm. is different. But um, I think, you know, from what I've seen, you know, there, there's more of a corporate presence than there was 10 years ago than when I started. But I think most companies are, are very respectful of the kind of community that, that you were talking about that trail and ultra running cultivates. And it is still, like I said, it is still a very close, close, not closed, but close kind of tight knit community. Um, you know, you could go to, you know, obviously New York or Boston and you're, you know, it's 25 or 40,000 people or whatever it is. Um, you know, even a, a moderate road race might have five or 10,000 people. And, and right, it, it, it is hard to kind of get a, a sense of uh, closeness within a group that large. But I mean, you think about the largest trail and ultra races in the country are, you know, 500 to 1,000 people. Um, and most of them are on a much smaller scale than that. And it does, it does lead to a, a very uh, communal and community kind of feel to it. I mean, you think about, um, think about the races like uh, in, in road racing that are kind of considered like a big party. Like you go to the Boilermaker and, and there's 15,000 people and everyone's drinking beer afterwards and everything else. Dude, that's every ultra race. Every ultra race yeah. afterward is everyone <laughs> just sitting around drinking beer and, and laughing and talking about their race. It's just there's only, you know, three or 400 instead of, you know, 15,000 or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, so it's, it, you know, um, if you go to, to New York or Boston and, and you see, you know, uh, Galen Rupp or Meb or whoever, and, uh, you know, you might see them from afar, you might, they might jog past you on their way up to the elite corral. Um, whereas, again, you're going to go to a trail or ultra race. And, you know, the, the, the legends of the sport, the people who you read about online on our niche little websites are right there. And, you know, they'll come up to you and shake your hand and ask you how your race was and, you know, share a beer or whatever it is. Um, so it is a, it is a very friendly and very open community. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, like I said, it, I, I think it has changed in the last probably 10 or 15 years, you know, as media kind of gets in a little bit more and, and um, you know, I guess, you know, companies see that there is a little bit of money to be made and sponsorship money comes in. But I think for the most part, you know, most of these companies have been respectful of the community that, that has been built and, and the, the kind of vibe that that ultra running and trail running has uh, kind of taken on for itself. Um, you know, one of the, I talk about all the time, um, you know, the North face uh, ultra race at bear mountain, which has been around for about 10 years. And unfortunately they've kind of shuttered for now uh, all of the North race uh, series, but you know, that had the potential to really be, um, you know, just a, a corporate uh, mess basically. But North Face did a really nice job of, you know, branding it, but uh, preserving that community feel. And they had a really nice start and finish line scene. And, and you know, you could look at products, but it wasn't overwhelming. And they still preserved the sand. And my friends and I talk about that all the time, that, you know, it's, it's branded as North Face and it became a big deal. You know, their series became a big deal. The, the, their championship race in California in December became one of the big um, – 
uh, dates on the calendar every year for, for the elite runners. But uh, they, they did a really nice job of maintaining that same feel and that same community. And I think a lot of the, the corporations that have gotten involved have been really cognizant of that. And then, you know, and, and many of the, even the top races are still run on a fairly grassroots level. I mean, the, the Western States 100, which is the oldest and most prestigious 100 mile, probably the best known trail race in the country. Uh, is still run by, you know, a board of volunteers. And, um, you know, they have corporate sponsors, but they make all the decisions. And it's people who have been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years, who've been running the same aid stations and volunteering in the same places. And I mean, that race has four, four volunteers for every runner in the race. So uh, it, it is a, you know, it, it's changed for sure. Uh, Leadville is probably one of the places where it's changed the most. Uh, but um, it still does have that that same kind of feel and that same kind of community to it, which is a nice, I think most people find that to be a nice uh, change from kind of what you've talked about with, with, the, uh, with the road running, which, I mean, can be, it, the big road races are super exciting. I've run Chicago and Boston and New York, and they're amazing, amazing experiences, and the crowds are great, and the logistics are awesome, uh, but it's a different feel. Uh, it really is. and. Um, and I think people who who haven't seen a trail or an ultra before, when they when they when they get to a scene like that, um, it, it's a it's a cool change. No, that's great. Yeah. No. Well, thank you so much for all your time today. Really, really appreciate it. Um, yeah. Everybody got. Oh, go ahead, John. I think there is one more, uh, probably the most important question that we've gotten in here is how okay. many of running shoes do you have? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> how did i miss that so, question um, i don't know justin you're slacking over there yeah <laughs> i mean how many do i have or how many do i actually run in both no okay. just have let's just keep it simple have <laughs> I, I mean in the, in the back of my car right now i have a like a big crate that that's like my regular rotation so that's like seven pairs probably okay. six to seven pairs uh, mm -hmm. that are kind of, you know, uh, like, a you know, a, a little bit of a different feel for a little bit, you know, if I'm running the road or the track or something like mm -hmm. that. Uh, how many shoes do I actually own in my house right now? Uh, <laughs> I hesitate to show you the room next door to where I'm sitting right now. Uh, if I had to make a guess, I would say 50 pairs. Nice. All right. Now I'm I'm checking the Facebook feed. I don't actually see that question. I'm wondering if John <laughs> if John planted that to make a justification to his wife. I'm just a little bit. Uh... Yeah, I mean the volume's up and she's in the next room. Yeah, she heard it. <laughs> hey Jay, thank you. Well, I will I will say this: if anyone wears a men's ten or ten and a half and would like a, a couple of pairs of shoes, I am definitely looking to unload some that I'm sure I will never get around to putting on. So please contact me. I'm happy to ship. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you yeah, so thank much. You so We're much. gonna throw the link to your website and everything down there um in the comments. So that'll be there when this sort of publishes once once we sign off of the Zoom thing here. Yep. Um awesome. so any any last things that you wanna say before we sign off here? No, thank you guys. This was super fun. Everyone yeah. out there, um, yes, please, uh, you know, stay sane, stay safe, keep, keep doing your exercises. You know, it's hard now with, like we said, with a lot of the goals out the window, but hopefully we've been able to 
kind of be able to refocus you a little bit. And uh, yeah, lean on these guys for your exercises. Do do your core stuff. Make sure you're doing your strengthening. This is the time where you want to really build that base. So work with uh, work with you. Find people to uh, to to keep everybody safe and healthy. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much, and thanks yeah, for thanks everything again. that you guys are doing over at the hospital and everywhere else. Really, really uh, appreciate it. You bet. Thanks, guys. Thank you. All right. All right. Speak to you soon. All right. We're good. We're right, off we're the done. live thing now. So you're good. <laughs> <laughs> that was great, guys. Thank, thank you so you. much. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so for much. That was great. That was really fun. Thanks. Yeah.